I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to the book of Jonah as we begin a new series this morning. And as you're turning there, it's a small book in the Bible, so just to help you find it, it's right near the end of your Old Testament. So if you flip to the end of the Old Testament and then just a few back, uh, that'll help you find it, which I actually didn't mark it off, so I've got to find it myself. Oh, here it is. All right. Jonah chapter 1. And as you're turning there, we'll just do a quick little word association game. Say it out loud. So ready? We're all going to do this together. I say a word, and then you say what immediately comes to mind. So Jonah, whale. Shame on you. That's not what we should think of, but it is what we think of, isn't it? Jonah and the whale. Uh, as, and every time I hear the name Jonah, I start singing a little song in my head that our kids have on this little CD in the car. And uh, it's just immediately Jonah and whale. But listen, this story is not about a whale. It's a story about God's unstoppable plan of redemption. It's a story that teaches us that we do not get to decide who is beyond the scope of God's mercy. The main character in this story is not a fish. The main character in this story is not even Jonah. The main character is God. He calls. He sends. He hurls winds and waves He appoints big fish and little worms, and he does it all to teach his people that we cannot fall into the trap of believing that God is our national deity that we privately enjoy while the world goes to hell in a handbasket. This book is teaching us that we're a missional people. We're blessed to be a blessing. So this story today is a rebuke. This story is a reorientation. It's a reminder of who God has saved us to be. So throughout the centuries, this sweet book of Jonah has been used by the Lord to shake his people out of apathy and to remind them and reorient reorient them towards the mission that God has assigned. And I believe that God's going to do that for us over the next four weeks as we study this amazing text. I hope you're there in your Bible now, Jonah chapter 1. We're going to read all of chapter 1, but in the Hebrew, actually chapter 1 ends at the end of verse 16. And uh, chapter 2 picks up in verse 17. I think that's a helpful division, and that's what we're going to do today. So chapter 1, all the way to the end of verse 16. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living, and active word to us today. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, 
And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up, hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, the book of Jonah is unique in that it is the only book in the minor and major prophets that doesn't actually contain a a word of prophecy. It's odd. Right? As you read the minor and the major prophets, they all have these, these prophetic words, oracles against Israel, or, oracles against Assyria, oracles against Babylon. And then you turn to this unique book as you're reading through the prophetic books, and there's no prophetic word at all. What do we do with that? Well, the Israelites understood, and early Christians have understood, that in fact, the word of prophecy is Jonah's life. The word of prophecy is the story. And as we look at this story, God speaks a word of rebuke. And in fact, the word is not for Nineveh. The word is for his people. And so therefore, if we're going to hear the word of prophecy that we're supposed to hear in this book, we actually need to dive deep in with Jonah, no pun intended. We've got to dive into this story and pull it apart if we're going to hear what we need to hear. So let's do that now. We're diving into the story. And the first thing that we see as we dive in is we, is we need to see the man. We so often read these stories with no regard for the people who feature in them. But we're about to spend four weeks talking about Jonah's colossal failure. We're going to spend four weeks talking about how he oh, so dramatically missed the mark. And we're going to see all of his blind spots and all of his weaknesses. And if we're not careful, we'll walk away from this series saying, Oh, Jonah, what an nincompoop. I'm glad I'm nothing like Jonah, as we so often do. But before we do that, and before we let ourselves go that way, before we study his mistakes, let's take a minute to acquaint ourselves with the man. This isn't the only time we find Jonah, son of Amittai, in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings, for example, when King Jeroboam is being described, here's what it says of him. It says, King Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from Lebohamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant, Jonah the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. So just before we dive into the story, three little things we see here. First of all, we learn that Jonah was a son. We know his dad's name, which means Jonah had a family, a family who would have been affected by his actions, a family who he undoubtedly loved and likely desired to protect. He had a hometown. He lived in Gath-Hefer. Likely knew the people in his community and they knew him and he felt a degree of loyalty to them and vice versa. 
And he was a prophet. Seemingly, he was a prophet with some semblance of notoriety because his prophetic word went all the way to the king of Israel. He saw this role, I would suspect, as a position of honor. Took it very seriously that God had called to him to speak God's word to God's people. Right, so this is Jonah. And we need to see him and all of that if we're going to understand the next thing that we see in the story, which is the assignment. So God spoke to this man, Jonah, and he said to him, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, just it's worth noting in passing that from where Jonah lived in Gath Hefer to Nineveh, it was probably no less than 600 miles which is a great distance, particularly in a time when travel was treacherous and long. But it wasn't the distance that was an issue for Jonah. The challenge was the destination. Though it wasn't always the capital of Assyria, Nineveh was always one of its principal towns. So God was sending Jonah to the Assyrians to warn them of coming judgment. And this is where it's helpful to be a a consistent Bible reader. Because if you're reading through your Bible for the first time, you say... So what? Jonah, go to Assyria, warn them that God's judgment is coming, and come back home. What's the problem, Jonah? But if you've read your Bible consistently, you know that Assyria was a nation that had historically made life miserable for Jonah's people. One commentator notes, since the middle of the ninth century, the country had been forced to pay tribute as a vassal of the Assyrian king. It was a land that inspired terror in Israel. So this is a place that was taxing the Israelites, making them pay up uh, tributes to this vast, they're a vassal to this big nation. And it was a nation that used terror to keep the money coming in. Uh, Not to be too graphic, but you should know, Assyria was the nation that would cut open women's bellies, would throw babies at walls, would impale their enemies on poles as a message to the nations to keep the tributes coming. They were the Nazis of their generation. They were a wicked, awful people. What's more, and this is the part that Jonah actually couldn't see, but we see on this side of the story. The Assyrians are the nation that would later on, after Jonah's missionary assignment, they are the nation that would later on destroy the northern tribes of Israel. Have you ever connected those dots? These are the people who would destroy the northern tribes of Israel. Jonah lives in the northern tribes of Israel. His family lives in the northern tribes. He ministers to the northern tribes. He loves the northern tribes. The people that he's being sent to are the people who in the future are going to wipe his people out. It's a difficult assignment. Jonah wanted God's judgment to come. He didn't want to warn them. And if you were in Jonah's shoes, so too would you. No more Assyria means no more paying tribute. No more Assyria means no more living in fear. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Jonah to return from this assignment? He's been gone for months and his family and his community says, where were you, Jonah? And he says, well, God's judgment was going to fall on the terrorist nation of Assyria that taxes us and treats us so terribly. So I went and gave them a firm word of warning. And they repented. So Assyria is saved. That's where I was. That's a big deal. Was Jonah kicked out of his community? Was he disowned by his family? We don't know these things, but you need to understand. That's what we're talking about. This is a big deal. Think about this. I wonder if Jonah's name wasn't a curse word 
in the northern tribes as their families were being slaughtered by the Assyrians. Jonah was the voice of warning to the terrorist nation. That's the assignment. Arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh. You hear it a little differently now, don't you? Now that we understand the man and we understand his assignment, perhaps we're better equipped to understand the next detail of the story, which is the rebellion. God says, arise, go. But we read in verse 3, Jonah arose to flee. He got up, but he went exactly the opposite direction. He went down to Joppa. He purchased his way onto a ship that was headed to Tarshish. Now, Jonah was a prophet, right? So he understood the sovereignty of God. He he understood the omnipresence of God. And yet, in a fit of self-deception, Jonah just wanted to get away. And he deceived himself into thinking he could do that. And so we read in verse 3, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare. He went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. He wasn't just running from the assignment. He was running from the God who would give him such an assignment. He was hard-headed, filled with hate, and he was hiding. But as we learn in Jeremiah 23, God is not someone that you want to play hide-and-seek with. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? There's no hiding from our God. Jonah told himself he could escape from the maker of heaven and earth, but, he was, but God was unwilling to cooperate with Jonah's self-deception. And very quickly, Jonah was reminded that God is just as present on the sea as he is on the land. We read in verse 4, The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Because God has a way of getting our attention, doesn't he? You know, You have never been hit by a storm that didn't first pass through the fingers of your sovereign God. Every gust of wind, every season of difficulty serves a purpose in God's grand design. All things work for the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. And sometimes those storms blow in to remind us that we've strayed from our assignment. Sometimes God sends us a jarring wake-up call. And that's what He's doing here with Jonah. Jonah is ignoring this wake-up call, literally. As the storm comes and everybody starts hurling the cargo into the sea to try and lighten the boat, to try and keep from sinking under, Jonah goes down further into the boat and he takes a nap. He falls into a deep sleep. And again, if you're reading this for the first time, you might come away from that thinking, silly Jonah, like silly, lazy, negligent Jonah. What a guy. Doesn't he realize the peril that they're in? I don't think that's what we're supposed to be seeing when we see Jonah make his way down into the boat, I think we're meant to be seeing a man who is in the pit of despair. You ever been there? He's done. He's done. So far into his rebellion, so discouraged, so disillusioned. The storm is raging. The people around him are suffering from his sin, but he doesn't care. He's numb to it all. Hiding under his pillow, he's done. Have you ever been there? The sailors uncover the truth. They 
say, what? it's Jonah, it's you, it's you, what can you do? And Jonah, rather than repenting, rather than saying, turn the boat around, I've got to pick up my assignment, rather than saying, wow, I've put you in harm's way, Jonah just says, throw me off the boat. Kill me. You're right, you're right. Everything is wrong with the world, everything is wrong with this boat, it's my fault, you'd be better off if I was just dead. Just throw me off. His resentment of his assignment was so deep. His hatred of Nineveh was so great. His rebellion against God was so settled that he would rather die than obey. The Hebrew word yirad means he went down. It's repeated again and again and again in this passage. He went down. As soon as he turned away from God's plan for his life, the whole story is a story of descent. He went down to Joppa down to the boat, down into the cargo hold, and eventually he went down into the depth of the sea. One old commentator says it so well. He says, Oh, that we all might lay this to heart. The path of the one who acts in self-will is always a downward one. Let the profession be what it may. One may boast of acting for God and talk of having his approval, but if self is served instead of Christ, the feet will soon slide. And the steps will be down, down, down. And some of us know that by experience, don't we? And in the midst of this rebellion, we find one more significant detail in the story. And that is the irony. See, the sailors play a unique role in this story. When the storm rolls in, what's their response? We find it in verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. So these men were polytheists, which means that they worshipped a plethora of gods. There are lots of polytheistic nations in the world today. And as is often the case when you've got millions of gods, people pick a pet god, if you will, uh, a patron god, the god that they particularly connect with. And so each of the sailors on this boat starts crying out to his unique, distinct god, hoping that maybe somebody will catch the ear of a god who has the power to save. And then they see Jonah sleeping, And so they wake him up. But it's not because they need help unloading the cargo. It's not because they need someone to help strategize how we're going to save this. No, they wake him up and the text says, the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. The captain says, this pagan captain says, we need more prayer on this boat. What are you doing? Maybe your God will be the God who has the power to deliver. The irony is that these unbelievers who have no knowledge of the power of Yahweh, the might of our God, these sailors are more eager to call upon his name than God's prophet. They proceed to cast lots to try to determine why the storm has come. And of course, the lot falls on Jodah. These are probably just like stones with the red side and the blue side. You know, they're Throwing these stones, trying to figure out whose fault is this? And it's, it's Jonah. So they interrogate him. Who are you? Who are your people? Where, where have you come from? Where are you going? To which Jonah replies, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And in that sentence, we are reminded that you can have excellent theology and still be a blazing hypocrite. I fear the God of heaven who made the sea. Really? Then why did you try to run away from him on the sea, Jonah? 
Why did you take a nap while our ship was threatening to break into pieces, Jonah? Why did a group of pagan sailors need to compel you to pray, Jonah? The irony here is that while these sailors don't have a relationship with Yahweh, they still have a legitimate fear of the Lord that the prophet of God doesn't have. The text says, Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Because he had told them. Commentator Joyce Baldwin, Baldwin notes the irony. She says, They fear indeed, whereas Jonah merely mouths the word. The irony continues. As these unbelievers, these men who have not grown up with a knowledge of the Lord, have not grown up with a knowledge of His law, show the compassion to Jonah that he refused to show to the Ninevites. Remember, they're at risk of losing their lives because of Jonah's sin. Remember, they just threw their cargo overboard. It's not a, it's not a small feat to go out to sea. That, that means they're not going to get paid when they get back. Cargo, gone. Livelihood, gone. Lives in danger. Why? Because of this arrogant rebel who was taking a nap under the boat. And yet, they refuse to throw this indifferent napping, napping rebel overboard. They get on the oars, the text says. They attempt, they're like, we're going to just get back to land. We're going to get this rebel off the boat. We'll be fine. But God wouldn't let them do that. Our sovereign God says, no, this boat's not moving anywhere. And so they row and they row with all their might and they can't get anywhere. And finally, after their best efforts and only after pleading with God for mercy, they give in to his request. We read in verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The sailors learned that day what Jonah professed with his mouth, but apparently didn't believe in his heart, that God is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And thus the first chapter of Jonah ends with the disobedient, prophet sinking into the sea so deep was his rebellion so great was his hatred for Nineveh so that's the story thus far and as I said if we're going to understand the prophetic message of this book the message is buried in the story so now that do we see it do you feel like you see it do you understand well now that we see this story we got to ask the question well what is God saying to us in this story what's he teaching us So I want to pull out three lessons that I would argue are are jumping out of this text. First, God is teaching us that His will is non-negotiable. See, our challenge after reading this story is that we're good at making excuses. And so we say, well, easy for Jonah. right? He knew what God's will was for his life. God spoke to him. God came and said, Jonah, do this. And then, of course, Jonah rebelled. But I don't know what God would have me do. I don't know what His will is for my life. And I just think that's a lousy excuse. Are you a follower of Christ? Or have you put your trust in Him? Have you laid your life on the altar and said, Jesus, my life is yours? Well, then God's will for your life isn't actually a mystery. He's very clear about this. Jesus looked at His disciples, His followers. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. 
make no mistake about it, there's no mystery. What is God's will for your life? Well, there's lots to it, but fundamentally, you are a disciple maker. You are a maker of disciples. Now, that's going to look different for each and every one of us. Because God's put us in different spheres of influence. But his will for your life is that you would drop your excuses, that you would kick your apathy to the curb, and that you would help the people in your sphere of influence to know and serve the Lord. And yet I wonder how many of us, like Jonah, have been attempting to resist God's will for our lives. Perhaps you've sensed for years that God is calling you out to the mission field. Perhaps you've sensed for years that God has been calling you to open up your home for foster care. Perhaps you've sensed for years that God is calling you to to finally step up and exercise leadership in your home and to disciple your kids and your wife and your family. Perhaps you've sensed for years that He's calling you to be more intentional with your neighbors and to stop hiding from them. To be more involved with your local church. To be more courageous in your workplace. I don't know what God's calling each and every one of us to. I don't. But let this text remind all of us that God always gets His man. He always gets His man. Don't waste another second running. He'll send storms and discomforts and enormous fish and whatever else it takes to remind you that you are not your own, but you belong to God. You don't get to choose your assignment. Jonah did not want that assignment. He would have chosen anything else. But to follow Christ is to lay every aspect of your life on the table and to proclaim, here it is. It's all yours. All of it. Do with it what you will. Jesus said that. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To follow Christ means to die. That's what it means. Did someone pitch you a different gospel? I'm sorry if we did. To follow Christ is to die. It's to die to your formal plans, your former plans. It's to die to your former passions. It's to die to all that comfort that you've made an idol and that you've been chasing after for your whole life. It's to lay all of that on the altar and to say, I am for Christ. And I go where he sends me. And I let go of whatever he tells me to let go of. That's the call. And if you forget that, you can rest assured that he will remind you. God has a plan for your life. A plan that's beyond anything that you could ever draw up for yourself. A plan that will not be thwarted by anything, not even your obstinance. So come on. I wonder if there aren't some Jonas sitting in the room this morning. Are you hiding? Trying to surround yourself with enough noise and enough busyness that you can drown out this clear call that you've heard. Arise. Go. That's the first thing we learn in this story. I would argue the second thing we learn in this story is God is reminding us that His call can feel impossible. Right? The reason why we don't pursue His will for our lives, the reason why we make excuses is because, wow, it feels impossible, doesn't it? That's not unique to us. Our God is a God who calls us to do impossible things. Why? Because He's the God who receives glory. Right? He he is in the business of asking you to do things that are far beyond your natural abilities. That's the point. Because you have more than your natural abilities. You have the God of the universe working in you and through you. 
one of the impossible things he calls us to do, and we could list a hundred, but there's one that I think particularly flows out of this text. As he calls us to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That was the impossibility for Jonah. It's like, I'll give my life to follow you. I'll give my life to serve you. I'll speak. But I hate these people, God. They're awful to me. The things that they say to me, God. The things that they do to me. The things, they make life miserable for our families, God. I don't want to go to them. Can I go anywhere else? I don't have any love in my heart for them. Now, for many of us in this room, we don't have a clue how to resonate with that because we don't have enemies. Uh, You know, praise God if you're here today and you say, I I don't have anyone in my life like that. No one in my life who, who, who makes it miserable, who persecutes me, who treats me awfully. No enemies. But there are a few in this room who know exactly what that's like. Jonah's hatred for these people was so great that he would rather die than perhaps provide a way out. Jonah was resting in the fact that God is just and that God is going to be just and that judgment is going to come on the people who have wronged him. He was resting in that and he didn't want to leave open this opportunity that those people might be released from this judgment of God. He'd rather sink to the bottom of the ocean than them escape the judgment they deserve. And there are some people in this room who know exactly what that's like. What if God were to call you to share the gospel with that person? person who did horrible things to you that forever changed your life. That person who persecuted you. That person who who has made your life miserable for as long as you can remember. What if God called you today and said, I want you to tell them that judgment is coming, that they need to turn and put their trust in Jesus. Because the crazy thing is, if they put their trust in Jesus, all of that wrath and judgment that is coming for them will be laid on Christ instead, and they'll be spared. And that doesn't look like good news in your heart. That looks like a disaster in your heart. That's what this book is about. Many of us, like Jonah, are holding on to that hatred, that longing for justice, and we won't let it go. But how different that is from our Savior Our Savior, we would rather die than that they would receive forgiveness. Jesus died so that they could receive forgiveness. And by the way, his enemy was you. And his enemy was me. He took that judgment upon himself. What a sharp contrast. Our Savior who died so that his enemies would be saved from judgment. They deserve that love, that scandalous, undeserved, taken advantage of love is the love that he's called us to extend to our enemies. It's the love that made Jonah jump up and get on a boat and flee as far from God as he could. Who is sufficient for these things? It's impossible. God called Jonah to preach to the enemy of his people. He called Elizabeth Elliot to preach to the men who murder her husband. He today is calling some of our brothers and sisters in Christ in Afghanistan to preach to the Taliban. God does these things. And he has a calling for each and every one of us. A calling that will feel impossible in its own respect. But rest assured, he who called you is faithful. He's faithful. And as you step out in obedience, he'll show you his strength where you're weak. He will mobilize his church in mission. Because the ultimate lesson that we learn in this text, the final thing where we land, 
is we learn in the story of God's heart is for the nations. The book of Jonah exists because we so quickly forget that God's heart is for the nations. It's always been the case. When God made that beautiful promise to Abraham, he told him, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Blessed to be a blessing. That's God's plan for his people. But time after time after time, they lost sight of this. They built bigger walls and they turned their focus inward rather than outward. One commentator says it well. He says, Israel had been separated from the nations. But not to dwell in a cold, formal exclusiveness, in utter indifference to the fate of the peoples about them, but to be a light in a dark world, making known the mind of God, manifesting the character of Jehovah to those who were sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. He saved them, and he, and he, and he did set them apart. But he didn't set them apart so that they could just forget about the world. He set them apart to be a blessing to the world, to be a light to the world, to show to the world emphatically that there is a God who loves us. There is a better way, a way that leads to life. That was their mission. But they, they lost it. That's why the book of Jonah exists. It's a rebuke for the people of God who have lost sight of the mission. And this is not an Israelite problem, church. We face the same temptation, don't we? We look at our families And we build up the biggest walls that we can and we turn our focus inward and we say, I won't let anyone or anything interrupt this. Nobody touches this. And then we look at our circle of friends and we build up big walls around it and we turn our focus inward and we say, I'm not going to let anyone into this. This is a sweet thing. Nobody touches this. And we look at our fellowship and our community and the church and we say, look at this. And we build up big walls and we lean in. And we say, we're not going to risk anyone ruining this perfect church community. Now listen, don't overhear me. Families are good and friends are good and church community is good. Yes, those relationships are actually gifts from God. It would be wrong not to enjoy them. Yes, we glorify God by delighting in all of those relationships. Yes, yes, yes. But listen, if you allow those good things to become God things and if you become so inward focused that you no longer have a heart for the outside world that is perishing all around you, that is lost and confused all around you, that is outside of community all around you, that is broken all around you, well, you might just get swallowed by a whale. That's what this text teaches us. You were once in the outside. I was once outside. Lost. Without a hope in this world. On the road to an eternity apart from God. We were outside of the big walls. But by the grace of God, someone somewhere remembered that God's heart is for the nations. Someone somewhere remembered that God so loved the world that He gave His Son. Someone somewhere took that impossible step of faith and brought the good news to you. And hearing you believed. And believing, you were saved. And you were washed. And you were made new. And you were blessed. For what? To be a blessing. God poured grace into your life. 
And now He's called you to overflow that grace to the world. So He's going to direct you to people. He's going to direct you to places. God's going to call some of us in this room to faraway places. He's going to ask you and me and every one of us to do impossible things. And He's not going to let you forget who He saved you to be. So go across the gym after the service and invite that new person to your house for lunch. And go across the street this week and invite your neighbor over for a barbecue. That neighbor that nobody ever invites over because he seems a little bit crazy. Invite him. Go across the ocean and tell the Taliban who are murdering Christians right now that there is a God who sent His Son that we could be forgiven and that judgment is coming. Listen, I have no idea who God is sending you to, but I do know that God is sending each and every one of us somewhere. And because I believe that God speaks through His Word, I suspect that He's laying someone on your heart right now. God's will is non-negotiable. His call can feel impossible. God's heart is for the nations. He will go before you. He'll give you all that you need. So don't run. Don't hide. Here is called you today. Arise. Go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I confess, I have no idea what you might be doing right now. And there's something about that that is horrifying, something about that that's thrilling. And Lord, I, I just confess, I'm just a messenger. Lord, and I'm struck by your text today. And so Lord, I, we as your people, want to pray right now. And we need your strength and your courage to pray right now. Take my life. Take my life. Send me where you want to send me. Direct me where you would direct me. Help me to let go of the things I need to let go of. Help me to press forward in in directions that feel impossible. Lord, we want to be used by you. And uh, Lord, we just confess that it's it's easy for us to neglect the mission. Because your blessings are so good. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do another impossible thing, which is to enjoy your sweet and tender blessings while also not making idols of them. Lord, we're thankful for this church community and for our friends and for our families and for the safety of our homes. We're thankful, Lord, for all of these wonderful gifts. But Lord, if you call us to move away from some of these wonderful gifts, I pray that, Lord, that we would be ready to do so because more than we love the gifts, we love the giver. We love you, God. And we know that there are eternal souls that hang in the balance that need to hear the gospel. Oh, Lord, I just pray that you'd mobilize your people. Mobilize us, Lord. And and that begins now. God, I pray in Jesus' name that that would begin in this very moment, that we would get up when this sermon is done and we would go home. And God, that we would be a people who are attuned to you, who are listening who are resolved that when you say arise, go, we won't arise and flee. We'll go where you send us. 
Lord, so that's my prayer for myself, for your church. Lord, it's my prayer for all of your people. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'd find us ready and willing and courageous and trusting. And Lord, I pray that you'd break our hearts for the things that break yours. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'd help us even to love our enemies. And Lord, I, I just suspect there are some people who, who are really going to struggle in that. Um, and I just pray for your grace. I pray that you'd give them strength. And uh, Lord, that you'd do what only you can do. You are the God of the impossible. And so God, would you do that in us, we pray. And we ask all of this in Jesus' mighty, saving name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?